Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to episode 211 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, Dan? Oh, just uh, just drowning in content. How about you, Leslie? Oh, you know, the same. Um, it's But again, we are lucky to have jobs here, and we are going to pour one out for uh, our friends and the staffers who have been affected this week by layoffs at companies including Disney and Amazon. Hmm. Uh, it's tough out there if you work in, in entertainment or media. It it really is, and <laughs> I mean I mean one of our segments is going to involve layoffs, and so basically there there are big layoffs, there are people layoffs, there are layoffs all over the place. Uh, yeah, and 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 most and mostly our hearts go out to the people impacted. Not one hundred percent of the people, but most of the people. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get into things, shall we, Dan? Let's lead off with the week's top headlines. Number one. Up first, the CW continues to bulk up on foreign acquisitions with pickups this week for the UK series The Rising, Australia's Barons, and the Canadian drama Sullivan's Crossing, with the latter bringing Chad Michael Murray and Scott Patterson back to the network. Dan, this is really an indicator of what to expect from the CW next season under Nexstar. Oh, and it also, it feels so much like the transition that took place at uh, WGN after the Sinclair deal. Uh, you know, when WGN went all in on originals briefly, on really great stuff in some cases, like Manhattan and uh, Underground, and then they decided that just wasn't the thing they were in the business of, and suddenly you looked at their programming and it was like, ooh, look, we found something in Canada. <laughs> and, yeah. and somewhat this concerns me because it absolutely feels as if a a network that has done a lot of really fantastic work in the past however many years even more if you extend it into the wb and upn days and suddenly it seems as if they're kind of i don't want to you know i don't know what the quality of the rising and barons and sullivan's crossing is but it feels to some degree like a here look it's the lint and change that we found under our sofa cushions and i mean i don't know it, what the quality is but i can t i can presume that the budgets are very 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 cheap on these in terms of the cost to the network and the latest that i'm hearing ahead of upfronts uh well we're almost into may here but uh, the last rumor is that the CW will have four U.S. scripted originals. That's from the current slate that's left over after last year's wave of cancellations. So we know one of those slots is guaranteed to be All-American, which has already been renewed. But uh, 
yeah, possibly three remaining slots for U.S. originals. And and while there's still a couple of things that haven't been renewed over there, a lot of other stuff is ending. But let's see, as I pull up my uh, handy renewal scorecard here, we know, let's see, still waiting for, for word, All-American Homecoming, The Flash is already ending, Kung Fu is waiting for word on season four, Nancy Drew and Riverdale are both ending, Superman and Lois is awaiting word on season four. Walker is awaiting word on season four. Then you've got Rookies, Gotham Knights, Walker Independence, and the Winchesters, all of which are, again, awaiting word on their future. Yeah. So lots of stuff hasn't been renewed yet. Very limited slots to fill them. At, at a certain point, this will have to impact the way that we look at the CW and its programming and how much how much of the conversation it's a part of but who knows I, you know I, the baron sounds interesting and i know that uh that it's i believe it's a it's a surf scene based drama it looks like and that could be fun and obviously chad michael murray has his fans <laughs> yeah what's weird though is you know these are shows that yes they're inexpensive compared to U.S. originals that come with the, you know, a, a per episode price tag pro that's probably far more than what they acquired these three shows for. But, you know, yes, Nexstar is trying to make the network profitable, but they're also trying to age up the demo. So I'm not really sure how Chad Michael Murray is going to be part of aging up the demo. But uh, I, I don't know how to tell you this, because this is also accurate for the two of us as well. We are in an older demo than we used to be. So, so if they're holding up the uh, holding up the demo, it's entirely possible that Chad Michael Murray actually might be completely reflective of that. I'm about to age out of the demo, at, at least the advertiser one, but not the the CW demos 18 to 34. I've been aged out of that for a long time now. <laughs> well, guess guess what? They're raising it, so the CW yeah. might in fact become your favorite network again. Though, if we're being honest, it's entirely possible that there are reasons why the CW has been your favorite network for at least the last little while. But that's a different conversation. Yes. <laughs> Continuing along with headlines, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel creators Dan Palladino and Amy Sherman Palladino have set up their next show at Amazon, and they've landed a two-season order for the ballet drama Etoile. Is that what we call this? I took Spanish in high school, so I do As not necessarily did I. know. But it uh, does translate to star in English. That is Fair, I suppose. Uh, I should also say it's not a very good name for a TV show. And um, and they might want to come up with another one because, uh, as Amy Sherman Palladino knows, when you have a ballet drama and it has a name that confuses people, it can really be a barrier event for entry. Um, <coughs> Bunheads. <coughs> indeed. Uh, this one will star Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's Luke Kirby. So, Sure. Why not? You know, uh, it's it's very, very clear that based on bunheads and whatnot, this is a world that Amy Sherman Palladino likes a lot. And I remain vaguely ticked off that we never got additional seasons of bunheads. So, oh, well, continuing along at Amazon uh, this week, the streamer closed a deal for another Batman animated series, a spinoff of a feature film. Uh, and this is the second one. There was the Matt Reeves, J.J. Abrams, and Bruce Timm series, Batman Cape Crusader. So, yeah, uh, I'm trying to figure out all the bits and pieces of Batman and Batman mania between HBO Max and, well, or sorry, Max 
and Amazon. How many animated Batman series are there at this point, Leslie? So there's two. There's Caped Crusader and there's basically this this family friendly. Basically, it's a kids animated show that's going to be a spinoff from a made for streaming movie that's also geared toward kids and family. So we know that there is going to be some adult animated stuff in the Cape Crusader show that, that as you said, uh, Bruce Tim, Matt Reeves, and J.J. Abrams are doing. Um, and then there's these other two projects, the movie and the TV spinoff. But neither of those three producers are involved in, in that one. So those are that's from all of these are, again, from Warner Brothers Animation. But Sam Register, who oversees all of Warner Brothers Animation, is overseeing um, the two additional projects, too. So I, I find this vaguely confusing. And I mean, it's, I, it's I part suspect of, I'm it's not part of the, the only War- one. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the Warner Brothers Discovery's efforts to sit there and say, we're going to continue to license content to third party buyers, which is obviously very profitable for them. But at the same time, it does create more of this confusion where you've got all the DC guys trying to create one united universe between film and television for for Max and and it, movies and theaters. But now you still have at least part of this animated world. I was going to say all the animated world, but you still have Harley Quinn, which, I mean, you watch that, Dan. I do. Batman's a character in Harley Quinn. That's an adult animated show, and that's on Max. But just, And just trying to figure out why the animated series that comes from Matt Reeves, who directed the Batman, is going to be on Amazon, while the Penguin spinoff directly from the Batman is going to be on Max. Again, I understand on a financial level, why this all makes sense. But as you just said, and as David Zaslav and the James Gunn administration and all of that have said, they're trying to make a more coherent and cohesive and focused version of the DC universe. And this is a confusing execution of that. Right. Well, at least we know most of the animation is going to be at Amazon. Fair enough. Elsewhere in news that is probably going to upset Dan in a minute here. Netflix has renewed Big Mouth for its eighth and final season with its animated spinoff Human Resources also coming to an end with its upcoming second season. Dan, I know Big Mouth is one of your favorites. Big Mouth is absolutely one of my favorites, but it's not a a show that really was ever going to run forever, I don't think. Uh, So, you know, I'm not I'm not sad. (laughs) I'm not sad, except for in the sense that this is a show that I love. And so I like having it and I like the opportunity to watch Big Mouth once a year, and that's great. And Human Resources, while I thought it was uh, imperfect, I thought it was a, an interesting and solid addition to that as a franchise. So the fact that they're both coming to an end is a little bit disappointing. But, but you know, it, it, it had a good run, and it's a great show. Sometimes, sometimes things just end, and you go, it was nice to have had them. So I think that's how I will look at that one. Continuing along with cancellation or cancellation adjacent news, Apple has canceled Truth Be Told, the Octavia Spencer series, which has taken on a different case each season. You can go back to uh, listen to our interview with the series creator from the original series, which was way back several different plot lines ago. So, Yeah, Nichelle Spellman joined us in episode 49 from December 2019. Yep, that was definitely one that was in the old THR offices. I remember it. Uh, and that was our our first, uh, our one-year anniversary of the podcast back then. Did we have a party? No, we had Nichelle Spellman on <laughs> to talk about Truth Be Told on Apple. <laughs> and then a couple months later, we had her husband Malcolm on the podcast. One of our, we've had several different uh, husband-wife teams that have actually been on the podcast together, including the aforementioned Daniel Palladino and Amy Sherman Palladino. 
And then we had those two on separately, but they're not the only uh, married couple that we've had on separately. So really, it's all connected. <laughs> yeah, we, we've had a father-daughter on before, too. We did, from different rooms in the same house. Continuing with cancellation news, Disney Plus has axed National Treasure Edge of History after a single series, one of several of those attempts at IP branding that just apparently didn't work for Disney Plus. Yeah. And in casting news, Logan Roy has lined up his next act as star Brian Cox will host Amazon's British unscripted competition series, 007 Road to a Million. Elsewhere, Lizzie Kaplan, Jesse Plemons, Joan Allen, and Connie Britton have joined the cast of Zero Day, the Netflix drama series starring Robert De Niro. There's a little mini Friday Night Lights reunion there with uh, Jesse Plemons and Connie Britton. So clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And if you stick around until the Critics' Corner segment of the podcast, uh, both Lizzie Kaplan and Jesse Plemons have new TV shows that are premiering this very weekend that will be discussed in Critics' Corner. So basically, everybody's keeping it busy. And wrapping up headlines ahead of May's upfronts. And and yeah, there really are still going to be upfronts in May. Just going to be weird. Um ABC has formally renewed Grey's Anatomy spinoff Station 19 for its seventh season. How is it possibly its seventh season with Zoanne Clack and Peter Page set to take over as showrunners for Krista Vernoff? Seven seasons. Yeah, seven seasons. And we'll probably have much more on the upfronts in the next couple episodes coming up here as we head into that season. But uh, bigger topics this week, you know, before we even get into thinking about broadcasts and upfronts and pilots and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned at the top of the show, it's been a busy, busy week in terms of staffing changes. Number two. Up second this week, cable news networks have really been front and center this week after CNN dismissed longtime host Don Lemon and Fox News ousted Tucker Carlson. Dan, what do you think here? Well, this is definitely the piece of news or the two pieces of news that everybody is talking about this week. And basically, Monday morning, everything blew up. And <laughs> I really feel for our colleague and last week podcast guest, Alex Weprin, who has been doing absolutely spectacular work this week and has been having to cover, you know, 75 of the biggest TV news uh, industry pieces yeah, kind of kind of ridiculous. And obviously, these are things of very, very, very different scale. If you were to look at the ratings that Don Lemon was getting in his most recent morning show uh, job and compare them to what Tucker Carlson was doing on Fox News in his long running show. Uh, yeah, uh, they, they, there are large differences, and it is important to acknowledge that. Um, and uh, the thing about all of this is that so far the news has been spinning in strange circles so that we don't necessarily understand exactly what happened in either case. And again, there are large differences in each circumstance. So Don Lemon has had one either mini scandal or embarrassment after another. There have been articles about his treatment of colleagues and, and things of that ilk. There was of course the, rather embarrassing women of a certain age in their prime and whatever comment that he made about Nikki Haley that was just ridiculous. There have been endless jokes about 
New Year's Eve performances and stuff like that. So, you know, you, you take those factors and you add them to not particularly high ratings and there there's a logic to it. Uh, figuring out what exactly the breaking point was is unclear. And then everything on Monday on Monday morning with the way that the news went out was a little screwy because Don Lemon tweeted from his notes app or something like that, where he talked about how there was no communication whatsoever with uh, the people at CNN. And then CNN's communication Twitter feed had to promptly respond and say, this is not actually what happened. We invited him to come in and he didn't come in. And, and we don't know in those cases what the actual truth is. But I think it's easy to step back and go, I understand how that was. <laughs> I understand several reasons why that was the thing that could have happened. Now, with Tucker Carlson, I don't know that we have a clue what the breaking point was. And that is what is sort of intriguing about this. We don't know what the breaking point is. We don't know what the ramifications are. We don't know what the contractual situation is regarding what he's going to be able to do next and when he's going to be able to do it next. Uh, so far, he's only put out one little video statement in which he said almost nothing about the circumstances of his firing. It, it was sort of strange and not in any way informative. And so as a result, in cases like this, a vacuum opens up and Scuttlebutt comes in to fill that vacuum. And so if you've been following the news media, it's been one unnamed sourced story after another between the New York Times, between the Washington Post, between the Wall Street Journal, and just all of these different things about trying to make sense of exactly what happened and who the trigger man was and things like that. So it sounds as if it was Rupert Murdoch and his call. And so I guess that makes sense. And it sounds as if all of the stuff that came out in the Dominion discovery played a role. So the New York Times reported on a bunch of texts that they weren't able to tell that they weren't able to disclose, uh, but that came out as part of discovery on on the Dominion situation. And you can go back and listen to Alex Weber and on our podcast last week talking about the uh, the settlement and who actually won or who lost. But there were all sorts of things that went well beyond <laughs> the part about how he knew he was telling his listeners things that weren't his viewers things that weren't true. There were rumors about colorful words he used to describe colleagues, guests on the show, etc., using words that we don't like to use to describe our friends and colleagues in civilized society. But in some cases, it's not completely clear. <laughs> who or what, there seem to have been rumors that several different people were called the C-word, which for British people, that doesn't sound impressive. But for us, it's a, a scandal. Uh, <laughs> there were also, and so we don't know, and we don't know exactly, and we also don't understand necessarily why any of those would be a thing that would be a breaking point for Fox News of all places, though I guess if Fox News figured that having just paid out however much they paid out, 787 million or however much it was, if there was finally a bridge too far, unclear. Then there were reports that Fox News had a basically a file of all of these charges against uh, Tucker Carlson that they were just basically holding on to to keep him from blasting <laughs> the company. Whether or not a non-disparagement clause in a contract would also do that is something else. Hard to know. 
Uh, so we don't know if those things related to it. There's also a lawsuit from a former Tucker Carlson producer, which uh, accused Carlson and the entire staff or much of the staff, some of the staff of creating a toxic workplace environment. Basically, there's absolutely no way to know what the answer was on any of this. Uh, and the the bottom line, if you happen to be a fan of uh, of conspiracy theories coming from the right is that Fox News simply went woke. And so <laughs> and I don't know what to do with it because it's such a ridiculous contention. And yet definitely I saw various conservative pundits on Twitter saying it. The truth, though, is that we don't know. And there are no particular facts in this situation or there are, but we don't know them. So I've just spent four days kind of reading various different anonymously sourced stories that don't make Tucker Carlson sound like the best person in the world to work for, which does not in any way shock me. But on the other hand, he was the most, the highest rated personality on the network and had been since, <laughs> since the scandal plague departure of Bill O'Reilly. So basically, as I've seen it put, a lot of people are, are having fun talking about the various different threshold events that have caused Fox News to finally cut ties with people, whether it's the point at which they finally cut ties with Bill O'Reilly, whether it's the point at which they finally cut ties with Roger Ailes. Apparently, they really do have a, a <laughs> breaking point at Fox News. It's just not necessarily the exact same breaking point uh, anywhere. And then there are also people who uh, continue to insist that Tucker Carlson didn't get fired, wasn't ousted, and that this was completely and totally his decision. And the truth is, we just don't know. <laughs> but, when, but when I said that we feel very bad and our hearts go out for many of the people who were let go this week, not everyone. Number three. Up third this week, speaking of ousters, NBC Universal delivered a bombshell with news that it had fired CEO Jeff Schell following an investigation that revealed, quote, an inappropriate relationship. Schell has held the role since 2020, reporting directly to Comcast CEO Brian L. Roberts and succeeding Steve Burke. Schell's direct reports will now answer to Comcast President Mike Kavanaugh for the time being. Joining us to discuss the surprising move is THR editor-at-large and friend of the five, Kim Masters. Kim, how are you? I am well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thank you for joining us. So this was obviously a big shocker for the press, but as you've reported this week, it wasn't a complete and total surprise to everyone within NBC Universal. What do we know about why he was fired for cause? Well, we are told, I mean, he acknowledged that he had a relationship with uh, on-air personality, an anchor in their Dubai bureau, CNBC's Dubai bureau, I should say now at this point. I, she had been at CNBC for quite a while. I'm not, I haven't quite figured out all her jobs, uh, but we are told that this uh, this started 11 years ago. And, and Jeff Shell, you, you know, you mentioned a date of him being at the company. He was at the company well before 2020, but he was really at that point seen as a star on the ascendant, you know, a favorite son of the upper echelon at, at Comcast. So he, he was in London for a period of time for the company. He may have met her there. It's a little bit unclear. It's also unclear 
whether the relationship was ongoing or started and stopped. Uh, I've heard some things about that that I can't really uh, at this point confirm, but clearly there was a relationship and has been reported that they were going to discontinue her contract, at which point she filed, uh, it's been confirmed, you know, complaint about uh, discrimination and harassment. So that's what we know uh, officially on the record. And Jeff Schell acknowledged this in a statement from NBC Universal, and he was uh, terminated for cause, you know, immediately. Well, I- I'm a little curious on the immediately. What was the the logic of the timing of it? Because this was a this was a big weekend thing that really did, from some people's perspective, come out of nowhere. But nothing right. comes out of nowhere. <laughs> well. I- First of all, it's a good question, but because I've wondered something along the same lines. I, if you're watching it from a, you know, stature at the company and, you know, are you still a star on the rise point of view? I had been hearing for months that, that Jeff had fallen out of favor. And some sources have said that Steve Burke, who he succeeded, was really the fan and not the people that, at, at the parent Comcast and, you know, this family where uh, the, the head guy is uh, Brian Roberts. Uh, and I reported that that uh, Comcast hadn't talked about merging NBC Uni. They'd had talks with both Paramount in the past few, just a couple of years. And, when the, and at that point, they supposedly said to Sherry Redstone, who obviously controls Paramount, uh, if you want your guy, Bob Backish, to run this combined company, that is fine with us. That's that's a bad signal. Uh, Paramount didn't want to comment on that, but it, it didn't happen. Uh, and then there was a subsequent conversation with the gaming company, Electronic Arts, EA, and that became public where they said, yeah, if you want your guy, if we make a deal and you, you want your, your CEO to run it, that is fine with us. <laughs> At that point, I'm pretty sure Jeff Shell got the memo and he started spending more time in New York. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I wondered whether, you know, in light of this news, whether, whether there was a woman as part of that story. But uh, one of my sources said, no, that was so he could be there to try and improve his standing with Brian Roberts at Comcast and compliment his tie every day. So uh, the timing, however, Dan, it does strike me it feels a little bit choreographed to me. I think there's more here than, than meets the eye. Uh, and it feels like, I mean, yes, you're going to get fired. You can be fired, you know, for doing that. You're, and if you are in a, a, you know, somebody's boss and it, you know, I think they've tried to make something like he wasn't her direct boss, but, you know, you're you're the head of the company, so you're her ultimate boss. And, and you want to start uh, messing around with an underling uh, or being romantically involved, you, you, first of all, I would say bad idea, but if you're going to do it, you have to disclose that to HR because it opens up such a can of worms. I mean, let's say, you know, I'm making this up to be clear, like he decided that she was not nice to him anymore. And he just said, you know, I hate her. Let's terminate her contract. Obviously that opens him up to a world of hurt if something like that happened. And I haven't heard any allegation like that to, to stress that point. But even if somebody is side by side with her and she gets promoted to something and that person who's the the colleague doesn't and knows that she's having a relationship, she can, that person can sue and say, I was discriminated against because that person got the, the, 
the, you know, the promotion that should have been mine. I mean, we had something sort of edging into that, well, in that territory with Jeff Zucker and his head of communications, who he was basically like living one floor, I can't remember, above or below in his apartment. And they'd been widely known as a couple for a very long time. You know, did they do anything about it? at uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, what what is now? No, <laughs> you know, not until they felt like it. <laughs> so, so the timing feels a little strange, and I almost feel like there's more to know. I feel, I do feel that. I, I reported there. I think there is at least. I, he was reported, you know, to have these crushes and say these things, kind of awkward. Somebody said not not creepy, but cringy. And, and that's not, you know, that that was remarked upon. I feel like there's just this big effort to do this now and say, and as they have said to me, this is it. There's no other woman. There's nothing else to know, which immediately makes me think, boy, what are you hiding? <laughs> right. In the in the bigger scheme of things, you know, the, um, Comcast had its earnings uh, this week. And I'm, I'm curious, what do we know about the larger impact of Shell's ouster across NBC Universal? Are there going to be any restructurings? Are they going to really use this as an opportunity to kind of fix some of the things that that maybe hadn't that that Shell had done that really hadn't gone over well? Like as as you and I have both heard, that big restructuring that he did in 2020 did not go over well, where he combined Peacock and NBC and all the cable networks under Francis Berwick and Susan Rovner and kind of divided the house uh, among both of them in terms of the business side and the creative, which has not really been popular internally speaking. Right. I know it's, a, you know, more about the nitty and the gritty of that, but I know it hasn't been popular and there's been a lot of frustration. And he had some other plans that were on the drawing board, I know, which he never got to implement. But one thing I have learned, I mean, I'm going to contrast this with Ron Meyer. Ron Meyer, who was the vice chairman of NBC Universal and was pushed out in an entanglement with Charlotte Kirk, this aspiring actress who had previously been entangled with Kevin Sujahara at Warner's, uh, you know, Ronnie was pushed out and Jeff was the pusher, <laughs> which many people noted that he was, seemed to be carrying on himself <laughs> while he's firing someone for, uh, for, you know, inappropriate behavior. Ronnie was, uh, paying this woman hush money, uh, because she is not apparently an actress that can be cast in anything. I don't think she, I always say if she'd only been a slightly better actress, none of this would have had to happen. But uh, casting her and things turned out to be a problem at Warner Brothers and, and at Universal. Uh, but but the funny thing is, or the odd, the way this the, the mind of this town works, Ronnie was still a beloved person after he was pushed out. And people... People still protect him widely. I mean, he's a really charming guy. He's, you know, he will help anybody who he can help. And if you call him up and say, I need this, he's always going to be yes, if it's possible. He he endeared himself going back years, you know, to many, many people. And, and even in the aftermath of the firing, uh, people didn't, nobody was like, you know, that Ron Meyer, what a thug. He's a bad guy. And there's none of that. Jeff Shell, on the other hand, gets pushed out, and I am hearing from all kinds of people, you know, that he shot from the hip. Keith Oberman has been tweeting that he's a liar. You know, he clearly, based on the people I've been talking to, had a lot of enemies inside the company who didn't like the way he rolled. And so it's a real, uh, you know, study in contrasts there that the, the, the jackals don't necessarily jump when you've been fired 
even for a good cause. I don't, nobody's going to defend what Ron Meyer did. You know, the jackals descend when they don't, when the, when the chance, when they have a chance and they actually don't like you. <laughs> so he's, he is uh, alienated quite a lot of people. So I'm sure that didn't quite answer your question, Dan, but maybe I wandered too far away from it. But, you know, what's going to happen? I mean, I think people are thinking, I've been feeling for months now, and that's part going to this idea that this feels a little bit like it, it, something was in the works for a while, and then they did this. I've been feeling that Donna Langley, who runs a film studio, is going to be promoted. And she's been more public facing. She's She, for a long time, has been you know, reticent, you know, she's, she's reticent. And, and then in recent months, you know, there's a party, there's this, you know, there's more visible and, and, you know, it's, it's just a striking contrast. And I've sort of heard it and felt it that there are bigger things in store for Donna. So potentially they could put her across all content, like the kind of the Bella, um, Bella Bajaria situation at Netflix. Um, that could happen. I don't think she's in line for CEO. I mean, she doesn't have that kind of operating experience. She's very smart, obviously, but, you know, I don't think she wants to deal with news and, and the theme parks. And, you know, she likes to do content, I think. I mean, I haven't asked her that question in that way, but uh, so I don't know that she would really, and, you know, as we've seen, news can be third rail. You know, you get into all kinds of conflicts. I mean, we're still remembering how Ronan Farrow hit problems at NBC News and many, many other examples of, you know, how volatile being in the, overlooking, overseeing news. You know, what Disney had that blow up at ABC News uh, a while back. And, and you know, even though Bob Chapek was CEO, Bob Iger and Peter Rice went to New York to kind of smooth that over. But, the, you know, we're all very difficult in the news business. So <laughs> not all. Some of us are more than others. <laughs> There's not a single part of this that does not sound like a plot line on Succession this season. So <laughs> I just... <laughs> I know somebody tweeted, like, isn't this Succession? Uh, yeah, there is that. They're, they're very good at Succession, you know? I mean, the Fox stuff is even more Succession than this, way more Succession than this oh, stuff. To, oh, to be sure. The number the number of people who who tweeted the picture of Carrie from Succession uh, in her in her audition reel and said, well, we know who's going to be hosting the 8 p.m. slot on Fox <laughs> News starting this week. Uh, exactly. <laughs> that was funny. Yeah, it's funny because I see, obviously, their majority uh, Murdoch's and Fox, but there's a dollop of the Redstones and the, you know, the aging father and the, the, that kind of, and the, and the stepson who, well, not the stepson, the half brother of Sherry, who was some guy with a ranch. <laughs> so I always recognize that. And uh, now NBC Universal is trying to get in that game too. Hey, Jesse Armstrong went to all that trouble initially of saying, no, 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 there's not a one-to-one -one relationship with the Murdochs here. And how lucky then that the media landscape has made it so it's actually about absolutely everybody. <laughs> and reportedly, the Jerry Hall, Rupert's ex, has been has been uh, instructed if she wants everything to go well in her life to not give plot lines to succession. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, light art is very much imitating life right now, and vice versa. <laughs> it's crazy. But it was a big story. I mean, I would have thought that, you know, in normal circumstances, Jeff Schell would have been given a softer landing because, because you know, he's he had been there for years. And 
he he's already, you know, ironically, I you could say hired hired Patty Glazer, who was Ron Meyer's lawyer when he went after them. I think Ron, I think after they, you know, they fired Ron Meyer and said it's for cause, you know, you're not getting any money. I think they actually did give him money. And uh, I guess uh, Jeff Shell figures that Patty Glazer is good at getting money out of Comcast. But I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Jeff Shell gets money, you know, because I suspect he could let things be known that they don't want known, even about himself. You know, let's say there's more. Let's say people at the company, I mean, I would say it's a very valid uh, hypothesis that there may be more. And if there is more, and that would be really embarrassing and much more costly in terms of talent involved, well, then it would be worth their while to say, we're going to tell everybody we're firing you for this, and we're not giving you money, and then we're going to slip you a little money. <laughs> I mean, I'd hate to be that cynical, but I think that could not out of the realm of the imagination, right? This is this is a cynicism-free zone, this podcast is, <laughs> well, uh, Kim. Sorry, you have definitely dialed the wrong number. <laughs> so here's my, my last question for you, too. So we know that, that Mike Kavanaugh is going to stay in, in this position for a little while. And you mentioned Peter Rice earlier. Obviously, he was ousted from, from Disney in a big, that, that was a big story in and of itself. But and what I will know the jackals did not descend because Peter Rice is well regarded. So, you know, long term planning don't don't step all over people, and then maybe the jackals won't descend. But go on, Leslie. <laughs> the, ja the jackals descend for us all, Kim. <laughs> and I didn't descend for Ron Meyer or Peter. But go on, Leslie. Well, what are you hearing about a larger replacement? Do you see? Can you see Peter Rice coming in and and taking over NBCU? Well, he and Donna Langley could be very British together. <laughs> I mean, Peter is one of the very few names where he started an independent film at Fox Searchlight, went on to run the movie business, moved to television, favorite son of the Murdochs, Rupert Murdoch. You know, people used to say about Peter Chernin, you know, if his last name could be Murdoch, then he would be running the whole company in perpetuity until he died. But uh, Peter Rice is also very close, very groomed. Uh, went on to Disney. You know, I think Disney, there was an old guard at Disney that found him, they didn't like him. They didn't think he was real Disney. They didn't think, he. you know, he is kind of a cool, cool customer, as you undoubtedly know from Leslie. I don't know about Dan, but he's a cool customer. He's not like a warm, cuddly guy. I mean, he's very smart. He's very polite. He can be very amusing, but there's not like, you know, this kind of uh, big personality that, you know, gets himself into, uh, I mean, I can see where the Disney people felt like, well, he's not really one of us and he should go. Uh, and I also think that Bob Chapek, who was then the CEO, might very well have thought that he was conspiring, or, or if not conspiring, probably thought conspiring, but if not, you know, somebody you would naturally look at based on the kind of experience he's had across film and TV. So I'm quite sure they're talking to Peter Rice. I am less sure they can make a deal with Peter Rice. And there are some people who feel like this new, this guy Kavanaugh is the future. He's the real favorite son now to succeed Brian Roberts at the helm. And this would give him a chance. He, he doesn't have entertainment experience. So I can see a world where they give him the job and make Donna some kind of almost partner or full partner. Donna, you know, she is going to be his guide through the world of the entertainment the content, you know, dealing with talent, yada, yada, yada. And, uh, you know, we saw when you, you have no experience at that when Bob Chapik decided to go after Scarlett Johansson. So I could see that being a scenario. 
Well, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. And you can keep track of all of Kim's latest reporting on THR.com or follow her on Twitter at, at Kim Masters. Thanks, Kim. Always a pleasure. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Number four. Up next, Hollywood, the entire city of Los Angeles, and this whole darn industry that we cover is holding its collective breath. As you might have heard, the Writers Guild of America's contract with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers expires on May 1st, and a strike could begin as early as May 2nd. So... As of now, like I said, holding breath, but Leslie, where does anything stand? Well, sources are saying that they're going to continue to, both sides will continue to negotiate through the weekend ahead of the May 1st expiration, but the WGA's members have already voted to authorize a strike with the vote coming in at a record 98% of members voting to strike if a new contract cannot be agreed upon with the studios and streamers. This week, the Guild issued rules for its members of what they should not be doing during a strike, and that includes no writing, no pitching new shows, no meetings or talks for current or future projects, and literary agents must also stop negotiations for writers. So it's a very contentious time. The Writers Guild has received support from the Directors Guild and SAG-AFTRA, and you can go back and listen to our interview where we featured friend of the five, Katie Kilkenny. That was in episode 206, where she discussed a lot of the core issues. And those include the size of TV writers rooms, meaning the number of people who are staffed on a writing staff for a show. The proliferation of mini rooms, which means small numbers of writers working in a quote unquote smaller sit setting to where you could possibly work on a, a number of scripts ahead of a possible green light or a possible red light, which in which case that's again, th th this is these are all ways that the studios and streamers are trying to save money on these expensive scripted originals. So also, obviously, overall compensation is at the top of that list. So we've been talking about this since March. We've started asking showrunners as early as January of this year about the strike. You can go back and listen to a lot of their feedback, over, including the, our great interview with Sean Ryan, uh, who, again, has negotiated many of these contracts and been part of that negotiating committee, although he's not this year. But what we've seen so far is a slowdown. So, Dan, that's probably music to your ears, but there's, you know, we've known that, you know, FX came out earlier this year and said this is probably the year that that peak TV decline begins. 
So the scripted news cycle has indeed obviously already slowed down in advance of the potential strike. And what's really been happening for the last couple of months is we've seen networks and streamers be in strike prep mode. So what that means is a lot of early renewals for broadcast. You can go back and listen to our interview with Susan Rovner in episode 200, where she talked about shows like Night Court, which is going to continue its writer's room through what is usually its hiatus period and with the hope of getting additional scripts for season two in. So if a possible writer's strike does come into play, they have scripts that they can actually film. So yeah, it's it's basically a hold your breath and wait and hope that there's a deal because what I'm hearing is a lot of sources are saying that this could be more than the three months of the last strike and that possibly a four-month work stoppage, which would obviously impact broadcast networks the most because they are the ones that are on the bigger timeline in terms of everything has to be done at a certain point because these are the time slots and the dates where we have to kick off the new fall season in September, et cetera. So Dan, it's just, it's a really nerve wracking time for, for writers and, and for the industry as a whole. It, it sounds like it. And also what I've been interested in seeing it, in all of the various different threads, because if you follow a lot of writers on Twitter, they're, you know, obviously very vocal. You'll, you'll be shocked to know that this is the thing that's on all of their minds right now. But I've also been interested in a lot of the threads that have attempted to kind of break down the differences between sort of how working writers are going to handle the strike, but then all of the multi-hyphenates. And that's those have been the the lists of restrictions and and modifications that I've found most interesting. Kind of what are the things that a showrunner who has all of these different hats that they're wearing? What are the things that they can still do? What are the things that they can do while still participating in in the strike as the writer version of themselves while also keeping the TV shows that they're producing going. It's, it's all very complicated and, and nobody wants a strike. So. Yeah. There's a lot of rumors going around that, that a lot of the studios actually do want to work stoppage. You know, like we talked at this, at the top of the episode, Disney is in the middle of layoffs this week, Amazon doing layoffs. I mean, it's, Everyone is in cost-cutting mode because of economic headwinds that are affecting the larger economy, right? So when you're looking at a possible strike, a lot of the studios, as we've seen in the past, look at the use it as an opportunity to do what's called force majeure, which is get out of deals where they're not getting anything and save money on these overall deals. And I don't know that that's necessarily true. The studios will probably deny it, but a lot of the writers obviously think that this is indeed something that they desperately want to do because, again, everyone is in cost-cutting mode. But, I mean, the last time there weren't very many many deals. I mean, during COVID, we saw a couple of force, of deals that were force majeure, but that, that was all, the one that I'm remembering most. It was a Marvel one because their entire model changed because they weren't doing the the Jeff Loeb TV stuff anymore. They were doing the Kevin Feige TV stuff. And and so those deals that were done under a previous admin, obviously they were getting rid of those, and which made sense from a business standpoint and, and in terms of the strategy. But yeah, it, it's going to be a real big question to see what happens here because, you know, like we've reported, you know, there's a good story up on THR that myself and Rick Porter did about the ways in which the networks and streamers have been prepping for a strike you know, I, I talked about how a lot of the broadcast shows are, are working straight through until pencils down to try and bulk up on scripts. Others have been 
ordering a lot more unscripted fare. As we've said on the show before, unscripted like reality and competition series are cheaper to produce than, than scripted originals. Others have pushed some of those originals that are already in the can. Uh, Fox has the animated Crapopolis, which has already been renewed for, I think, its third season. It hasn't even aired yet. That got pushed to fall. You can hear Susan Rovner talking about Found, the Greg Berlanti-produced uh, show that was supposed to be mid-season on NBC. That also was pushed to fall. Apple also delayed the after party. So these are things that that they're doing to try and make sure that they still have content in the, the event of a, a prolonged work stoppage. And obviously, acquired content, which we talked about what the CD, CW is doing as a larger strategy. Obviously, acquiring some of these shows, like, you know, what happened during COVID was a great example. If you remember, Dan. I do remember. Know, L- LA's Finest, the Spectrum Originals show, got picked up by Fox as filler content, right? Because obviously, the work stoppage obviously came from out of nowhere. No one knew that about what what was going to happen and the extent of of the covid and the sh- and the whole production shutdown. So why like, they picked up these, you know, th- these kind of gently used shows that hadn't really reached a, a broad audience yet. So that's obviously something that that a lot of these companies have been doing too and picking up animated shows, acquired content, so much different things. So yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see what happens, how far apart the sides are uh come May 2nd when the strike could begin in theory and you know, it would be a miracle, I think, if if a deal did, did if a deal were to to get done this weekend. And I assume that there are people in ro- in rooms, kind of going over all the things that they did last time there was the extended strike, and we've talked about all of these things extensively, including Dexter airing on CBS. So I assume there's someone in a room trying to figure out if they can cut all of the Fox out of Succession, uh, whether that could possibly air or something like that. And then no there- chance. <laughs> it seems unlikely. No chance. And then there are the things that um, that we've also talked about, things like how many months into a strike would it have to go before Saturday night became regular airings of The Mandalorian night on ABC? You know, all of the things that basically everyone has to do to... I mean, they should be doing that on. anyway to to broaden out the streamer and expose some of that content. But, you know, when we speak about streaming, that's really what's at the center of this, you know. The business model for being compensated in the, during the streaming era, it continues to evolve. And obviously, you know, a lot of the, these platforms don't release viewership. How many times have you heard Dan and I complain about this? I feel like a broken record, right? There's no real traditional streaming data that that is released in the way that that Nielsen tracks and that can tell you how many thousands or millions of viewers watched a program at a specific time or in its first week of release or whatever. You know, it's like, all these things like, oh, you know, a billion minutes spent. And it's like, don't make me do algebra for this shit. Like, you know, they am, these companies know how many people are watching or how many people are not watching. And instead, the, the way that the writers have been compensated is, has completely blown up, right? It used to be like if you sell a show to broadcast, then it airs for four or five seasons and it goes into syndication. Cha-ching, you get a payday for, for, for that. If it sells internationally, you get a payday for that. Then you sell it to streaming. You get a payday for that. And that's on top of your per episode payment for actually doing the job that you were hired to do. But now all of those revenues windows are closed. There's no syndication market anymore, right? I mean, there is, but it's very, very small because most of these these shows, especially ones that are made for streaming, 
That's it. That's their destination. They're not going anywhere else. You're paying to keep the exclusivity there. So that means these writers and producers are being paid less because there's not the potential to sit there and say, okay, well, if Ted Lasso runs, you know, three seasons and this is truly the end of the show, and then Warner Brothers decides after five years to sell the show and air it in repeats on whatever network, Bill Lawrence and company should be compensated. But the odds of that happening, the odds of Apple letting go of the exclusivity, especially on its crown jewel, slim to none. So that's what one of the major, major issues here is, is how writers are compensated, especially in the streaming era when the revenue windows have closed. Well, we will surely be updating this story probably every single week on this podcast for the foreseeable future. It'll be a little bit like the way we spent nine months being this week in COVID shutdowns uh, back in 2020. But this week in Jeopardy ridiculousness. Oh, don't even remind me of our <laughs> of our Jeopardy streak. That was that was not a good time period. But anyway, yes. So we will surely be keeping you up to date uh, with probably with our buddy Katie Kilkenny and with all of us, because this is going to be the biggest thing in this industry that we cover going forward. Yeah, stay tuned to THR.com for full coverage. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with a Critics' Corner. Lots to choose from this week, Dan. You've got Amazon's Citadel, National Geographic's A Small Light, HBO's The White House Plumbers, Fail Attraction gets rebooted on Paramount+. Plus. And HBO Max goes where Hulu has gone before with Love and Death. Dan, what you got? Lots of stuff. Uh, you will be shocked to know. Unable to get to everything because too much stuff. For example, the first season of Sweet Tooth on Netflix was really a, a, an incredibly pleasant surprise when it premiered back about 100 years ago. And the second season is, I believe, now available. And I had no time to get anywhere near that one. I kind of I kind of made the choice if I was going to review something for this podcast to watch a few episodes of Love and Death instead, uh, because our colleague Angie Han reviewed the full series. Uh, but I did make a point to watch the first three episodes of Love and Death, which is uh, what is premiering. So at least I'm on top of that. And yeah, as you as you said, this this is the exact same story that Hulu already made as candy. Uh, you can go back and listen to our our fun chat with Jessica Beale, uh, who was on the podcast for that. When was that, Leslie? Jessica Beale joined us in episode one sixty eight, May sixth, twenty twenty two. It was a fun chat, and you know, every once in a while, it's nice to talk to someone who who isn't necessarily a showrunner, though she was a producer on that and also the star. So yeah, if you if you recall, it is the story of uh, Wiley, Texas housewife Candy Montgomery, who was accused of uh, brutally murdering her friend Betty Gore in Texas in 1980. And this is the exact same story with some similar source material. And different scenes will seem very, very familiar if you watched Candy. And Candy's a problem because the familiarity takes away from some of the pleasure. And I think that without Candy, I could probably take a step back and in a vacuum say that Love and Death was actually pretty good. Um, it, you know, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's great by any stretch of the imagination. And David E. Kelly at this point has a lot of of ticks to his writing that are 
are becoming more and more evident. Obviously, he always did. People would make jokes back in the practice Ally McBeal days about certain things being very David E. Kelly. This is David E. Kelly in that big little lies mode, et cetera. The, you know, from the opening credits on, you go, okay, this is very David E. Kelly. And uh, you have the very talented Leslie Linka Glotter uh, directing. And so there are a lot of talented people involved. And the, and the cast here is terrific. And the primary thing that has to be said is that Elizabeth Olsen is excellent as Candy Montgomery. She really and truly is. She benefits from having a lot more time and space to develop a character than Jessica Biel did. And she also benefits from not being weighted down by the ridiculous but entirely historically accurate uh, perm wig that Jessica Biel talked about with us extensively, because you couldn't not. The wig was basically what Candy was about. Candy was very, very caught up in the late 70s, early 80s kitsch of it all. And to me, it was a good deal more arch than it needed to be and probably should be. It, it never quite found its tone, uh, though I thought most of the performances were very were very good. And I thought Jessica Biel was good. I just think Elizabeth Olsen is better here. I, I think that it does help that they've simply decided they're not going to do anything silly with the wig. They're going to mostly tone down the the kitsch and the 70s campiness of it. And it becomes a love story with some comedy and with some brutal murder. Uh, in this case, the man that the main character has an affair with is played by Jesse Plemons, and, and he has a lot more opportunity to develop a, a character than uh, than Pablo Schreiber did in the Hulu miniseries. I, I think it's a, a much more fully realized performance. Similarly, I think Patrick Fugit as uh, Candy's husband just has more to do than Tim Simons did in, in the movie. Probably the, I mean, in the Hulu series, rather, probably the, the biggest advantage that the Hulu series had was Melanie Linsky playing, playing Betty, the woman who was, who was murdered here. It's Lily Rabb, and she's, she's good. Just for some reason, the series isn't as interested in her. So unclear why. It's, it's a great supporting cast, uh, fun performances by people like Elizabeth Marvel, uh, Keir Gilchrist, Kristen Ritter plays Candy's best friend. Uh, so yeah, if you skipped Candy or were completely unaware that Candy existed, I think this is a good chance to watch Elizabeth Olsen at work. She she is is really good. She gives the character a lot of depth. She makes her both funny, but also probably more sympathetic than she necessarily needs to be. You know, what with the whole axe murder aspect of things. Uh, and then obviously there are things that are going to be, again, not kitschy or campy necessarily, but the, the soundtrack is what the soundtrack is. A lot of really, really good late 70s tracks. Uh, some of the costumes are a little on the the tacky side because it was 1979-1980. Uh, so I'm not completely sure necessarily if I'm going to be watching more of it because, again, I really do know the story. Uh, but, but I felt like I had a better understanding of these characters and the situation from watching this than I did after watching Candy. And so, uh, so yeah, love, love and death on, on HBO max, uh, soon to be max. I, I thought it was, was fairly interesting. I, I think one thing to note last week, a lot of the shows that were premiering that I reviewed in critics corner were strong recommendations. I still think, uh, the diplomat is a really, really good show. I think that, uh, dead ringers is a, a, 
very, very strong piece of IP adaptation. I think that the key thing about Dead Ringers, as I said last week, is that its performances are excellent, but more than that, it has a clear reason why there's value in taking a two-hour movie that is a masterpiece and expanding it, in that case, to six hours. In contrast, Paramount Plus has an eight-hour adaptation of Fatal Attraction that really, unfortunately, does not give any indication at all of why this 1987 Adrian Lyne movie needed to be fleshed out to uh, to an eight-hour Paramount Plus miniseries. It's kind of, in fact, frustrating because a lot of the things that actually would make sense as reasons why this could be a viable TV series, whether it's the Me Too dynamics of a workplace relationship or our current fascination with true crime, a lot of the things that really and truly could have made this a worthwhile television series are, are just hinted at and then tossed aside. So, okay, if you if you haven't seen Fatal Attraction lately, you've seen 800 things that were inspired by it. It's probably a more influential movie than it's a good movie. Uh, but here we have Joshua Jackson playing Dan Gallagher, who in this version is a deputy district attorney or or some sort of crusading uh, a crusading prosecutor. He's got a judgeship on his horizon. Everything's coming up. Dan Gallagher. He's very excited. And then he meets a woman who works somewhere else in the halls of justice in Los Angeles. Also Los Angeles now. Uh, Alex Forrest, played by the always prolific, always excellent Lizzie Kaplan. And they have an affair. And then things get, you know, a little crazy. And in the movie version notoriously they changed the ending dramatically because audiences were more bloodthirsty than uh, the writer and the director anticipated them being. And the last act of the movie becomes basically a slasher film. Alex Forrest is unkillable until she's killed and she's just increasingly unhinged as she goes along. And all of the sympathy that, the movie has for her in maybe the first 45 minutes really goes out the window and audiences were cheering for her to get killed, which is gross, but they steered into it and it became a massive hit and also a best picture nominee, which is always a little bit strange. Uh, here, it, I think a lot of people assumed that if they were going to bother doing it, part of the reason to do it was to kind of underline the idea that maybe Dan Gallagher is the bad guy here and that Alex is sympathetic and and not really crazy at all. And I, I don't think that's really how the series approaches things. I think that without any question, Dan is a personification of of white male privilege. He's the son of a of a formerly powerful uh, district attorney himself, and he got his job with the help of his father. And it's established in the first episode that even when he screws things up, he never has to face consequences. And so the entire series is him facing consequences. But on the other hand, it's still designed as a, here's a woman who gets obsessed with the man she has an affair with and goes cuckoo bananas. It tries getting 
into Alex's head somewhat. I think it does it in really superficial ways. I, I think I don't think it really has very much interesting psychological insight into romantic obsession or anything like that. I think it's kind of like, what is the most obvious answer? That's what it is. The TV series also expands things with a framing device. So part of it is said in 2023 with Dan getting out of prison after 15 years for having murdered Alex, which he claims he did not do. And we see all the stuff that happened 15 earlier years earlier. So it's partially 28, uh, 2008, partially 2023. And so that expands things a little bit more. Uh, the stuff in 2023 allows us to see what happened to daughter Ellen, uh, played by Alyssa Jarrell's as a result of the stuff that happened in the movie, as a result of the affair. And some of that's kind of interesting, though having Ellen be a psychology grad student who's learning all of these Jungian archetypes that relate directly to the plot of the series is a little uh, cheap and a little comical at times. However, giving us extra time also throws in a murder investigation that lets the great Toby Huss have a very, very fine uh, supporting role as a private investigator who works with Dan. I always like watching Toby Huss do things. He's very, very good here. Amanda Peet is very good as Beth, Dan's wife. Lizzie Kaplan is really terrific. And, and really, she makes whatever sympathy the character gets, she makes it feel earned, even if the scripts don't necessarily feel earned. Joshua Jackson is is really just hampered by bad middle-aged make bad middle-aged man makeup, questionable hairstyle decisions, just a lot of distracting stuff that really doesn't lend to a, a great performance. And it it also you, you've got the opportunity to correct the tacked-on ending of the movie, the reshot ending. And instead, the TV series has multiple endings. One was anticlimactic and one was just straight up silly. Uh, I I don't I just don't see why anyone is going to think that this was a journey that was worth taking, um, even if some of the performances would tend to suggest that maybe it should be. Um, so, yeah, uh, I mentioned Toby Huss, Toby Huss having a very big weekend here uh, because he is a co-star in White House Plumbers, uh, which comes from Alex Gregory and Peter Hike, uh, and it's directed by David Mandel, all written by the two writers, directed by David Mandel. And it's yet another version of the <laughs> of the Watergate story. I, I feel as if we we keep getting different variations on this story. And the reality is that probably None of them are as dramatically persuasive as all the president's men, and none of them are as comedically persuasive as the uh, Kirsten Dunst, Michelle Williams classic Dick, which sadly is unavailable to stream at this moment. Uh, this is much more in the Dick vein. I don't know if I like having said that, but uh, but that is a thing that just came out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> so... So yes, it is It is much more focused on, and you will be shocked to hear this if you know anything about Watergate, the idea that the Watergate burglars were really, really bumbling fools and that somehow they bumbled their ways into starting the greatest scandal in the history of American politics. The, the focal characters are Woody Harrelson's E. Howard Hunt 
and Justin throws uh, G. Gordon Liddy. And for like three and a half episodes, the show is very, very, very chaotic and attempting to be funny. It's exactly the version of the story that we've seen depicted a dozen times as most more than a dozen. And most recently with Gaslight uh, just last year on Stars, the Julia Roberts thing. Uh, which also wasn't great and which also suffered from tonal problems. And I think probably the reality is that the Watergate scandal simply had tonal problems, that sometimes it was a very, very, very funny thing that was happening as American democracy was falling apart in front of the world. So it's hard to find that balance. And I don't think that White House Plumbers really does. I think that Justin Theroux is just straight up playing comedically. Woody Harrelson is playing broadly comedic for about three and a half episodes, and then in the fourth episode, he tries to take it very, very seriously. And I think his is the performance that is representative of what the show is trying to do. I just don't know that it works. And then you've just got so many people in this, and so many of them have so little to do. So Lena Headey as uh, E. Howard Hunt's wife, Dorothy, who's an extremely interesting figure in her own right— She's got a lot to do, and she's fantastic. And But then a lot of the supporting players have less and less and less to do. Kiernan Shipka serves no purpose whatsoever as uh, one of Howard Hunt's daughters. Um, you've got... You've got F. Murray Abraham popping up for no particular reason as a judge, which has become more, you know, distracting now than it was before. Just people left and right in supporting roles that are variably forgettable. Uh, and sometimes they're memorable, I guess. Kathleen Turner has a great guest turn in the second episode. Totally worthwhile. Not necessarily a reason to watch the entire series, but if you're watching, I promise you, you won't recognize her her first appearance. And then when you go, oh, that's Kathleen Turner, it'll make you happy. Uh, Judy Greer pops up. She adds some value. The aforementioned Toby Huss plays uh, Jim McCord, who was one of the burglars who who made some of the more bumbling <laughs> mistakes in the process. He's good, and it's a nice contrast from his character in Fatal Attraction, who's really, really, um, who's really, really capable at what he does. Uh, I found that the tonal shifts in the end of the fourth episode, beginning of the fifth, just really didn't hit home for me. Uh, but it is still funny watching Will, uh, Woody Harrelson and and Justin Thoreau do their thing, and and Justin Thoreau is is kind of off the reservation with his line readings. It's it's a it's a crazy performance. Whether it's a good performance is kind of an eye of the beholder thing. But uh but yeah, so uh that would be White House Plumbers. I'm going in no particular order with this because there's just so much TV. So that premieres Monday. Um Monday is also when a small light premieres on Nat Geo. And this is this is the the Anne Frank story from the perspective of Meep Gies, uh, who was a secretary for Otto Frank's company and who helped attempt to save the Frank family in Amsterdam in the 1940s. It's kind of another of the heroic Gentiles who did a lot, but maybe, but simply couldn't do enough, unfortunately, tragically, in World War II, and it's a little bit like Transatlantic. I think it's better than Transatlantic in large. That was the Netflix series I reviewed like three weeks ago. 
It's better because Bell Powley is is excellent as Meep. Um, I really like Bell Powley as an actress. She's kind of an actress who people have struggled to use. And you go and you look at the first season of Morning Show on Apple TV Plus, which definitely didn't use her enough or properly. She kind of has that Florence Pugh thing where you see everything that's happening. She she's not an actress who hides her feelings. She's very available and emotionally visible and present. And so when she's joyful, it's easy to be joyful with her when she's frazzled and falling apart. It's easy to follow her there. And I think she's excellent. Um, Leah Schreiber is, uh, Otto Frank and he is, he's solid. It's a very quiet performance by him. Um, and I think that the treatment of the Frank family is nicely done. Uh, Billy Boulet or Boulette, I'm not sure which, because I don't know her name, plays Anne Frank and does a good job of simply making her a teenage girl, which is the point. It's, it's not to treat her as this grand martyr, as this brilliant future famous young woman who was at the center of a tragedy it treats her as a smart young woman and i think it does that very very well probably at eight hours it's a little longer than it needs to be and um probably the last couple episodes push more towards sentimentality not necessarily than is warranted. Clearly, all the sentimentality imaginable is warranted. Just then it can withstand. But I would say that what's interesting is that the first handful of episodes, they have humor, they have heart. There's a little bit of romance with Joe Cole, who plays Jan Gies, her, uh, her Meep's husband. There's a lot of tonal variation in those first few episodes, which I appreciated and thought was fairly well done. Um, so, again, that's on... Uh, it's premiering on Nat Geo and then will pop up on Disney Plus and Hulu. And then last but not least, and don't worry, I'll do a rehash on all this after I can take a deep breath because Jesus, too much TV. <sighs> if anyone ever wants to know what I'm doing with my time, I'm watching all of the episodes of TV to do this podcast. Uh, Amazon's Citadel. You've probably heard a thing or two about what's been happening at Amazon and what happened behind the scenes on Citadel. And if you haven't read our colleague and guest on this podcast just 15 minutes ago, Kim Masters' story about things happening at Amazon, you should really read it because it's great. But it kind of gives this impression that Citadel could have gone either way. It could have been a disaster or it could have been kind of the game-changing piece of of narrative boundary breaking that they wanted it to be. We've we've talked about kind of the idea of the show, which was this is a franchise that we're building, that we're conceiving of as a franchise, but it's an entirely original idea. And it's an original idea that's going to have international spinoffs. There's going to be, a, a, you know, potential for an Indian one, for an Italian one, et cetera, a Mexican one. A and watching the actual series which kind of has the fingerprints of various levels of reshoots, reconceptions, etc. The the series is credited as being created by Josh Applebaum and Brian O and David Weil. And David Weil, who we had on the podcast for Hunters way 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 back in the day. Uh he was the one who came in as the replacement showrunner and kind of steered the version of the show that it became 
and and part of me thinks that basically his job was to make it accessible, to, to just get people into this world. They kind of decided whatever was distinctive about it, whatever was revolutionary, you get to that in season three or four, what you need to do is get people into it. And what they do is it's a fairly familiar, somewhat generic espionage story with vague semi-futuristic sci-fi elements. It's it's kind of, it's not really, it's not science fiction in an ultra-reality sense, but it's definitely not literally our reality. And so basically the premise is that the show opens with two secret agents played by Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Richard Madden. Uh, they work for a a, an organization of spies called Citadel. We're told that Citadel are the good guys, that they've prevented every disaster in the world over a hundred years, but that an oligarchal group of wicked spies called Manticore have been trying to basically take out the entire Citadel infrastructure. The opening scene is set on a train going through the Italian Alps. Things go bad, and both of our main characters end up as amnesiacs, and then eight years later, they have to get back into the spy world. A and if the idea of a spy who doesn't remember their past and has to rediscover their spying sounds familiar to you, it's probably because you've seen Total Recall, The Born Identity, Long Kiss Goodnight, and like 50 other things in this genre. And this is absolutely one of those. It does move quickly. We've only been sent three of the first six episodes. They're all under 40 minutes. It just zips along. But part of why it zips along is because it's there's just so little substance and nuance to it because it's just trying to move so quickly. And so I can't tell you if Richard Madden and Priyanka Chopra Jonas are, are very good. I can tell you that they both look good in their respective tuxedos and gowns that they wear because they're spies and whatnot, but I can't tell you if they're good because there's just very little characterization. You've got Stanley Tucci and Leslie Manville. I can tell you they're good, but I can tell you they're good because they're Stanley Tucci and Leslie Manville, not because anything about their respective characters are good. The international aspect of the story basically boils down at this point to establishing shots of different foreign locations, but nothing actually tangible done in those locations. And so... Yeah, my, my review came to the conclusion that the best thing I could say about it was that it wasn't a disaster, but that it's not good enough to really be the the franchise starter that they think it is. So I think what they're hoping is that the stars get people in, that it moves so quickly that people aren't worried about the fact they've seen it a hundred times before, and then they can actually make the show interesting in season two, season three, the Italian edition, whatever. But what this is is not hugely interesting, unfortunately. So to recap, absolutely all of that, Love and Death, it's candy again, only now it's on HBO Max and from David E. Kelly and Leslie Linka-Glotter. The first three episodes are now available on HBO Max, and I thought it was a great vehicle for Elizabeth Olsen, but if you saw candy, you know the story, and this is exactly that story. Uh, continuing along, Citadel premieres on Amazon on Friday. If you've read Kim Masters' great article, you might be thinking, this is going to be a disaster. It's not. It's just generic. 
Fatal Attraction premieres Sunday on Paramount+. Plus. It's completely unnecessary as an adaptation of a movie that lots of people like. But that being said, if you're watching it, there are some good performances. Lizzie Kaplan, Toby Huss, etc. And then Monday is the premiere of both White House Plumbers on HBO, uh, which I found totally unwieldy, but lots of the performances were good. And, you know, the Watergate story is always a compelling story. And then A Small Light, which I thought had good tonal variation and a really great focal performance from Bell Powley. That's going to premiere on Nat Geo, and then it will be on Disney Plus and Hulu. And now I'm going to take a deep breath. <sighs> and one last show that I actually wanted to add here is The Golden Touch, King of Collectibles on Netflix. Uh, this is one that I'm personally interested in because, well, as you may or may not know, I'm a very, very big collector of baseball cards and memorabilia. And this show, it's an unscripted show. It's six episodes featuring Ken Golden, who is a huge name in the hobby and runs the biggest auction house in, in town. And if you are interested in collecting or if you've been a former collector and want to get back into it or you're just really a diehard person who loves the hobby like me, this has something for everyone. It, it does a great job of making the hobby accessible while also not talking down to collectors who, who already are very familiar with what's going on in the, in the hobby. So six episodes. It's from Brent Montgomery, who created Pawn Stars. It's very much in that same vein, but some incredible memorabilia and incredibly rare sports card collectibles uh, featured here. It's a fun one if you're into it. So. That's my official take as a Holly, as a, as one of very, very few collectors and TV people. It's like the perfect cross section of the things that I'm interested in. So for more of Dan's weekly recommendations and none of mine, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporters. Now see this newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. They help spread the word of mouth. You can always come say hi to us on, on the Twitter. She's at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at the fine print, F-I-E-N. Let us know what's working, what isn't working. Uh, last week, Leslie mentioned that we're going to have a mailbag segment coming up at some point. So we got a few emails from you guys, but we could always use a few more. So bring them on, bring them on, bring them on. You can email us at TV's top five at THR.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. <laughs>